0: This is WMPG, my name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show for the courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight is the last in an eight-week series on suicide. We've talked to people who've lost parents to suicide, people who try to prevent suicide, um, and people who try to treat people struggling with suicide. And tonight, for our last show, we're we'll talking to someone who has actually attempted suicide, and really come back and offered a lot to people with similar struggles. My guest is Sherry Huber. Sherry is a student and teacher of Zen. She's the author of 20 books. In fact, her 20th book is coming out in the fall. But in terms of our discussion tonight, she's the author of The Depression Book and the book There Is Nothing Wrong With You. Sherry, welcome to Safe Space.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: I wondered if we could start by um, having you tell me the story of what You know, what led you to that desperate point in your life?
1: Yeah. uh, Of course, one of the difficulties in uh, looking back on an event like that is that my life is so different now. It's really sometimes um, difficult to put myself back in the place of that, um, even though I was 26, I think it was at the time, um, very young person. Um, struggling in life circumstances that were really felt uh, beyond her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and going to various places, attempting uh, in a fairly uh, significant uh, state of unconsciousness, as, as one is. You know, I mean, the whole world, I think, would agree that that's a, it, it's, a, it's a state of mental illness that a person is in when they're going to uh, put a gun of their own body, try to kill themselves. Um, it didn't necessarily feel like mental illness, of course. It just felt like I didn't know what to do next. I tried to get uh, professional help and nothing really worked for me, uh, and I just didn't know what to do. I just knew that when I looked ahead, I, c- I could not face uh, literally another day of being as miserable as I was right then.
0: Mm. And so then tell me, um, you know, one of the important things in in the media reporting about suicide is I don't want to glorify it in any way, but maybe you can just tell us what you did and what happened afterward.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'm a country kid, so um, guns were uh, very familiar to me, and and that was what I chose to use, uh, primarily because, again, in that same state... I didn't know what else to do. It's not like I had access to any kind of medication or, you know, that sort of thing. So, I just got a rifle and um and put it in my stomach and pulled the trigger. And um at when at when that happened, you know, there's such a uh, a shift from this is a good idea, I just won't be here to oh my god, I didn't know I didn't know pain could be that intense. Um and uh so then 911 came to because I was, you know, I was not alone uh, at the time I was in an apartment building and um you know, I woke up 2 weeks later in a hospital just um you know, bandaged uh, and restrained and with I find out later a sign on the outside of my locked door that indicated that I was a suicidal mental patient and and uh, needed to be watched very carefully.
0: You write, you tell of a very powerful conversation or really monologue that you had with your surgeon. I wondered if you could tell that story.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite memories, actually, uh, because it's very disorienting to do something like that, you know, to do something so, um, I, don't, I don't use the word dramatic in a, you know, a, sort of a disparaging way, but, I mean, it's a pretty big, Thing to do and and to know that you're you're going to die and then to wake up uh alive and um it's just i remember being very very disoriented and in through the door comes this chap and this was a long time ago so he actually had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with this great long ash growing on it as he's Mm -hmm. talking to me and he walks up to the side of my bed and um uh, he looks down at me and he says, nobody should be able to live, nobody should live through what you've just lived through. I would suggest that you find out what you are here for. And turned on his heel and walked out of the room. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, one of those, you're hysterical and somebody slaps you? Yes,
0: yeah, so I was it, gonna say like a profound wake-up
1: moment. Exactly. And and it ri- it truly was a turning point in my life because... I realized as I um, was there recovering for uh, quite a lot, lot longer, because I, I really did myself some some very profound damage, um, I, I thought, uh, you know, I've really tried everything in my life. I've tried uh, it, everything I knew how to do to be the person that I should be and, and fit into society and, and live the, a good life. And the one thing that I had never ever ever considered was happiness
0: okay so help me understand what you mean i never considered it didn't you long for it and wish for it
1: it 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 was always going to be a result of something else so down the road when i lived the life i should live when i was who i should be when everything came together then i would be happy i it never occurred to me that happiness could be a focus for life.
0: And not a byproduct that you had to earn through striving. Exactly. So how did now, from the surgeon saying to you, I suggest you figure out what you're here for, to realizing that you wanted to make your focus happiness, that's also a relatively long stretch. How did you get from one to the next?
1: Well, it it was actually a, a pretty fast turnaround because it occurred to me in that, uh, exchange that there must be people who knew what i didn't know uh there it must be possible to figure out life so one of my earliest memories when I was uh you know early early teens or pre teen was um looking at at life trying to figure it out i i, I found life to be very cruel uh actually and i i couldn 't figure out how given the fact that we do not know. Where we came from, what we're doing here—you uh, know—we're on this clod of dirt, rocketing around in space, uh, and I'm supposed to get an education and find the right person and have children and save money for my retirement, and that—and that's my life program. And it just—it just struck me as impossible. It just seemed crazy.
0: Like so, a kind of a living death, almost. Pardon me. Like a kind of a living death, almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and just, I mean, what is the point? What, why, why, given those unanswered questions, why, why would anybody want to do those things? Why, you know, why didn't we all just escape to an island somewhere and eat mangoes under a tree and work on our tan? Although, I, truth be told, I didn't have those thoughts now. <laughs> um, but I did then set out to try to figure out, did anybody know how to do this? You know, what is was there was there an alternative to that story that I had been given to live? And so, you know, that, that plunged me into uh, philosophy. And then when I found out that, you know, they, they had really good questions, too, but didn't seem to have a lot of good answers, I turned to religion. And uh, I wasn't raised with any religion at all. And so it was a really fascinating field of study for me. And what I was looking for was, who 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 can give me a better life uh, purpose than than the one that I have currently, and fortunately, blessedly, then actually was the very last thing that I explored uh going kind of through it alphabetically and, uh, <laughs> very uh, systematic very systematic, yeah, I'm a very organized uh, kind of person, and uh when I got to that, I realized not that I understood what this guy was talking about. But I knew he knew what I wanted to know, and that's what launched me on a, on you know my the rest of my life. So
0: let me understand that when you say I knew he knew what I wanted to know, what what was that? What did peace. he know? He
1: seemed peaceful. I knew peaceful. he was at peace.
0: And how was it? Was this a speaker you went, to, or was this a
1: book? How no, how it was a tell? it was a book I read. Uh, it was a book by a chap named D.T. Suzuki. Uh, who was one of the first uh, individuals to bring Zen from Japan to the west, and it was uh, a this very kind of simple <laughs> simple explanation of Zen practice and um, and i uh, and i it was just obvious to me from the way he uh, communicated that he had found a level of understanding and peace that uh, was what I was longing for but was never able really to put a a name to.
0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Sherry Huber about the journey back from a suicide attempt. So let me ask you more about Zen. I know that you're deeply immersed in teaching it and learning it and practicing it yourself. Um, when When you found it, and it seemed to have this ring of... Authenticity to it had this answer that you were looking for. Were you depressed then?
1: Oh yes, I I come from a a, a whole depressed family, which uh, again, you know, when when I was going through this, now if if it was known that depression is hereditary, that uh, it took all of these different forms, that I, I certainly didn't know it, and uh, it didn't seem to be very much about in our in our culture. Uh, but, my grandmother uh shot herself um you know my my aunt uh just lived through centuries <laughs> of eating disorders um mm-hmm. not, that refers to the fact that she said she lost the same hundred pounds dozens oh, of times oh. uh, alcoholics um you know it just every every form of attempting to deal uh with depression that um n- nobody nobody understood you know there's clearly something uh, deeply disturbed in these people's lives although uh intelligent and kind and good good people but just never able to um kind of pull themselves out of this uh well, depression
0: yeah yes. so here you are you're struggling with the same demon that sort of had a hold of many of your family members and you know in my training I remember being told at some point that if you're really depressed you're not really able to meditate because your thoughts will just sort of bring you round and round in a terrible rut and you won't be able to kind of get out of it. And I'm curious did was meditation possible for you when you were depressed and if so how did that not happen for you?
1: Well it it was actually and and I I've I've uh I've looked at this a lot because meditation is such a um a misunderstood word in our culture. So I would actually um, use the word mindfulness. Okay. Um, and and what I mean by that is the ability to direct the attention. And in profound depression, it was actually something I could do. Because, you know, uh, m- the, the form that my depression took was not... Uh, negative thoughts necessarily uh, or upset thoughts or that sort of thing, but um, a lack of energy. I mean, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. I wouldn't be able to get off of a chair to walk across a room. Yes. That kind of thing. And so, you know, really believing that I must be terminally ill with some hideous disease and yet there was nothing wrong with me. So I see. But
0: what you could do was focus your attention. I could it.
1: focus my attention.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And what I began to realize is that, with help now, of course, I have a a teacher at this point, so I've I've got somebody outside of me coaching me uh, with this sort of thing. And what I realized is that I lived in an unobserved conversation inside my mind about what was wrong. And, of course, what was wrong was me.
0: Yes, yeah, so there was this unobserved running commentary on you. Yes. In other words, the whole time, finding fault, finding fault.
1: Yes, and blaming me for the fact that, my, that I was dysfunctional, that my life wasn't working.
0: Yes. Now, so, you know, people are taught to say, well, that's depression talking. Did you feel like that was the voice of depression, or does that, did it feel like that was the, your voice talking to your depression?
1: Well, uh, I've actually, over the years, uh, named that voice self hate, uh-huh. and uh, it's a uh, I've you know we don't have time to you right. know, get into all of that, but it's the it, where I recognized it was an internalized voice of family and society comparing how I was to how I should be. always comparing and judging and me coming up short. So when I recognized that that conversation was going on, it became possible for me to turn my attention away from that conversation and back to my actual life experience. And the simplest uh, understanding that came with that was that I experienced myself as extremely hyper or manic um, or depressed. Those were, you know, because now I would have a a diagnosis of uh, bipolar. So I would either be manic or I would be depressed. Uh, And so I either had too much energy or I didn't have enough energy. And when I got it, that the comparison was the thing that was killing me then I could look at the amount of energy that I had and realize that I had plenty to do whatever I wanted to do or needed to do if I weren't comparing it to the way I should be feeling.
0: And part, was that partly because in the comparison itself you
1: were robbing yourself of energy? That Oh, absolutely. That's where, the, that's where the energy was going. I mean, it was just being siphoned off into that negative conversation. So you know, it's kind of the the uh, the coach from hell.
0: Indeed, uh, indeed, and and you know, I'm struck. So, you know, when you describe it, it sounds so so clear, almost so simple. Like oh, I just I w- became aware of that conversation, and I shifted my attention elsewhere. Um, did you experience that self hate conversation as somewhat relentlessly pursuing of you?
1: Oh yes, and uh, now I've been doing this for what thirty thirty five years, something like that. Uh-huh. And I I am fairly convinced, and I attempt to convince other people of this as well, uh, that were I to stop doing what I'm doing, it would all come back. Huh. The tendency toward that is always there, and uh, you, it's all around us. It's culturally, um, y- you know, we, we see it everywhere in news, and media, in that that sort of thing. We see it in books. We see it in magazines. We see it in, you know, it's it's everywhere, that how it should be, how you are comparison.
0: Yes, and so let me try to understand this even more. So you're aware there's that comparison. It's sucking you dry, essentially. It's really Mm -hmm. just costing you dearly. Mm -hmm. And you choose again and again to bring your attention to something else. Yes. Often the breath, as I understand it. Yes. And um, is there any possibility of befriending that voice or finding out if there's some hidden good intention, something that actually might have a more, strike a more la- long lasting
1: peace well, with it? In, in the world of psychology, of course, there there's a lot of that. You know, people will talk about it as the shadow or they'll, um, you know, uh, the critic or that sort of thing. Yes, And and he, this is just my personal take on it. So when when I'm Working with people, and they ask me that question. This is what I tell them: okay. You, you go on right ahead and do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to waste my time on it. I have this human here who is suffering hideously at the hands. If that's a funny image, but at the hands of that voice. Yeah. I'm going to save this human, and that voice can uh, take care of itself. If it gets to the point where it wants to make peace offerings, then I will happily meet it halfway. But I am not going to abandon this person one more second to go out there to try to make its life better. I'm just not interested.
0: I see. Okay. So I want to come back. I want to come back to something else you said that was really interesting for me. When you said I had so much energy, I had so little energy. In your book on depression, you said that um, in some ways your depression was actually a way of coping with the overwhelm of too much energy. Yes, And in your experience, is that true for people without bipolar depression but with regular unipolar depression? Well,
1: uh, now, of course, I'm not in the world of, uh, um, you know, finding out how people are diagnosed. I understand. Uh, I work with a lot of people with depression. I've never found one of them yet who didn't respond uh, really favorably to exercise. To modulating that uh, that level of energy through movement, and uh, one of one now, this just interests me. Okay, (laughs) so we have a society that is devoted to uh, caffeine and sugar and junk food and a sedentary lifestyle. Yes, so we are constantly. Just uh you know, revving our bodies up to these alarming rates through all of this uh, adrenaline producing stuff, and then sitting on a couch right now i I think that there's a direct link between that and what people think of as depression, and when it's that, they certainly uh, respond favorably to getting up and moving around, letting that energy flow, and letting and also turning the attention in a way that makes that energy available for them and as something that they can enjoy. That's a critical piece of it. So at this point, when I turn my attention, I actually I do turn it back to the breath, but I turn it back to the breath as a center of enjoyment, of peace, of uh, compassion, kindness, um, all of those kinds of ways that I want to live and be in the world. That's That's what I find... When I come back to the breath, and I much prefer that, of course, to <laughs> that yes. hateful conversation.
0: Yeah, so you kind of disidentify from that self-hate voice. And what And what happens when you do is you experience this place of peacefulness
1: inside. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so I, I, there's something else in your book that's also intrigued me. Uh, you talk about, you describe mindfulness meditation in your books often as an awareness practice. Yes. And... I've always been confused because on the one hand you invite people to count their breaths and then you also describe this sort of incredible awareness these insights that you have where you start observing the patterns of how your mind works and so on. And I've always been confused how your mind could be counting your breath and noticing all these cool patterns at the same yeah. time.
1: That's 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 very good. The what counts the breath is what I talk about as conditioned mind. It's in in Buddhism we would talk about it as Small mind, the individual mind, and it's it's extremely limited. It's where all of this uh, conditioning lives. This karmic social conditioning lives. It's the right, wrong, good, bad, us, them. It's figuring things out all the time. It's the incessant conversation. But it exists within what we talk about as whole mind, the expansiveness of all that is. If if we were um, if you know in a Judeo Christian orientation or a Muslim orientation, it would be God. Day. So that individual conscious awareness or consciousness lives within this larger um, conscious awareness. And so when, we, when the small mind is engaged in an activity, is involved in something, then all of that expansiveness is open and available to us. So it's so
0: sort of like giving a dog to, a bone to chew so that exactly. it can go be content yep. and occupied.
1: Yeah, or a child. You know, there's a child bouncing off the walls, and if you can get them interested in something where they can direct their attention to something that that interests them and that they can focus on, then they can calm down and be more available for the rest of life.
0: I see. So if we come back to your personal experience, here you are, you're recovering from this terrible gunshot wound. You're you're deeply committed to kind of finding your way that works for you, and you start this practice. So you start, um, sitting in mindfulness, you start counting your breath and you start observing this conversation of self-hate that's going on that had been unobserved until then. And so you really are able, I mean, you've given your small mind this task, this numbers to count, Mm -hmm. and then you can start observing yourself Mm -hmm. without getting pulled into it.
1: Yes.
0: So you have to keep sort of Stepping like seeing it and then disidentifying from it, and then seeing it and disidentifying yes. from it
1: and what you're describing is the is exactly the awareness that dawns, and that is that what I think of as as me and what you think of as you beyond the personality behind the personality is the awareness that is aware of it all, so you're constantly leaving that small perspective and stepping back into the larger perspective that can actually, uh, so I, I can see this human being named Sherry within that large context. I'm no longer even particularly identified with that individual. So there's I'm enormous
0: respite night. there. There's an enormous relief. Oh. It really was. So it shifted you out of depression really quite quickly in a way, it sounds yes. like the capacity in moments of presence to do that.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yes. So, Sherry, I'm suddenly looking at the clock and realizing we have so little time. And I want to ask you another thing. In your book, you describe that kind of co-arising with depression are the very forces that keep it uh, stuck. And you talk about hating it and judging the depression And that even when depressed, how important it is to have compassion for ourselves. And I wondered if you could say
1: more about that. Oh, yeah. I I kid people all the time. Because, you know, obviously, I mean, I draw a lot of depressed people. And and so I'll start through this little routine with them. You know, you get up in the morning, you go, Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Because you can feel the sensations in your body. You know, you can tell it's coming. And, um, And this mad scramble to get away from it. And we know if we've, been watching any of how human beings work that trying to get away from something is the fastest way to be plunged into it and so what i encourage people to do is just throw your arms open and embrace it you know come on in come on come on come on in what do, what do you need what do you need talk to me let me let me let me take care of you i'm I'm here i'm going to do everything i can for you it's okay it's you're safe here and um And that changes our relationship with it so dramatically that we are no longer victim to it. We actually become kind of a mentor to it.
0: Okay, so I confess I'm confused between the difference of mentoring and welcoming the depression and really turning away from the self-hate. Are those different things? Are they the same?
1: Yeah, because the, the person who feels the depression... I talk about it as an aspect of the personality. So, you know, it's often a very young part of ourselves who's being talked to by those hateful voices. I see. Yeah. So we want to take care of the human always. The yeah. the person, always. Uh and and what we're really doing is moving into a role of protector against those hateful voices that wanna call her or him names and assign labels and predict hideous futures and review past failures. Indeed. And sort
0: of I realize we're going to, have to, we're going to run out of time, but Sherry, I know you really wanted to say something about your view of antidepressants, and I want to give you that moment to say that now.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it's just that, um, that the thing that we were just talking about is it. You know, whatever a person can do to help themselves to embrace the human being who's suffering in compassion and then take whatever steps are available and possible to assist that human being. That's the transformation that we're going for.
0: And whether that's pills, exercise, mindfulness,
1: practice,
0: go for it.
1: All of it. And yes. never get stuck anywhere. Never get stuck anywhere. It can, it, you know, there's always, so here's my favorite uh, quote. Okay. Um, I love you exactly as you are and I'll help you be any way you want to be.
0: Sounds very freeing. Thank you. That seems like a wonderful note to end on. Sherry Huber, if someone wants to follow up with you, what's your website address?
1: livingcompassion.org
0: livingcompassion.org Sherry Huber, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space.
1: Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Sherry Huber is a student and teacher of Zen and author of multiple books about Zen practice and also about depression. Again, her website is livingcompassion.com I don't remember if it was com or org now. But at any rate, um, thanks to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Leonard for the music, and Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to email me with a request or a suggestion for a future show, please do so at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annwmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.